turn to the book of Colossians this morning, to the book of Colossians, and we've been in a series that we've entitled Preeminent, a study out of the book of Colossians, trying to see how, how the Bible articulates so clearly that Jesus Christ is, in fact, preeminent. He's first place. He's uh, numero uno. He's every uh, supreme title you can give him over all things, including our own lives and our worship and uh, our walks uh, with him. And I was thinking as I was preparing and praying about this morning uh, that this is a, a sweet time for us as a, as a people. I hope you recognize that uh, this is the only time in the week where the assembled church gathers together and uh, we do a lot of talking with one another, whether we're at small groups, whether we're, we're uh, in fellowship activities, whether we're sitting around tables eating meals with one another, uh, whether we find ourselves after being dismissed from uh, worship We're a group of talkers, and yet there is one time, one moment in our week uh, where we as the church become silent, and God begins to speak, and that weight uh, of me being the only one talking has been heavy on me this week, and the reminder that, that I am simply a mouthpiece, but that the church is listening and God is talking, and so as we take this word in our hands as, as John prayed, that this wouldn't become rote, that we wouldn't think that this is just some curriculum uh, that we've bought or, or uh, some themes that we're thinking about, that we would understand that what we are reading from the book of Colossians, as with all of Scripture, is God's love letter to you and me. And God is speaking to us, and I pray that we would open our ears and open our hearts to what God has to say because he's speaking to us and he wants to encourage us, he wants to challenge us, he wants to give us the words that bring life. And, and I'm not sure about you, but I could use some life in my life. I could use some hope, I could use some joy, I could use some peace uh, in a world that's at times very difficult to live uh, in. And so with that reminder, let's, let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible and follow along with me. You can find our passage on page 983 in those Bibles, page 983. And we're going to read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 29 through Colossians 2, verse 5. And our focus will be on the first five verses of the second chapter of Colossians. But let's, let's go ahead and look at that text together. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking... In Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Our text for the morning. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, 
which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Father God, we have worshipped you in song. We have heard the public reading of your word. We hold that, Lord, in high esteem as, as words breathed out by you, our God in heaven. We have shown our dependence by pausing in prayer, recognizing that nothing can happen without your sovereign plan and and goodness in our lives. And now, Lord, as we hear your word taught, Lord, I I pray that the people in this service and the service to come, that all of us would hear what you have to say. Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way so that you may be heard loud and clear this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Growing up as a child, I remember lots of different commercials that I would see advertising many different things. And one of the last things you would think would be advertised or or would have an advertising campaign would be that of our armed forces. But I remember growing up as a young boy, remembering commercials Uh, where uh, men were called at that time uh, to consider serving in one of the armed forces. My favorite one, of course, uh, was the Marines, where they were looking for a few good men. They were looking for a few, the proud, the Marines. And I remember in some of them they would show uh, the idea of men who were being willing to be challenged and shaped in some way. They were being cut down to size. I remember one in particular where it starts with a, a, a long piece of iron that's in the fire and it's being beaten and shaped. And, and, and little do you know that it's a, a symbol of what's happening to the men and women who would serve in the Marines but at the end of the commercial, you would see that, that rough piece of metal that was put under great fire would be the very sword or saber uh, that was full of gleam and, and shining uh, iron uh, that would be placed in the holster uh, of the Marine who's now graduated in his full regalia or full uniform that he had. You see, they did this to, to try to get people to understand you didn't have to be perfect You didn't have to have your life all put together. In fact, the Marines say, we'll take care of getting you ready. We'll take care of the hard work of taking civilian young man or young woman and make them a mean fighting machine ready to go in the most fiercest of battles with a cool and collected head. Within our text this morning, I was struck by Paul's words that seem a lot like that advertisement. I'm not sure exactly if this is Paul's intention, but as a pastor, I read these words, and what I see is is a calling, an advertisement for men uh, into ministry that that will do things effectively, that will do things that will change them and shape them and make them a fierce fighting team for the sake of God and his kingdom. But as I think about that, I also want you to be aware that we are all called to be priests. We're all called to be pastors. Whether that's our vocation or not, God has created in us a people to be a royal priesthood, Peter tells us. 
And we're all called to serve and honor God and be that fighting team uh, that God has called us to be. But, but what are we to look for in those types of people? And as I, as I thought about this passage, I asked the question, what, what does a pastor look like? What is one who is diligently wanting to be one of those few good men or women in God's army? What are they to look like? As I thought about my own ministry, I said, well, maybe, maybe I need to make sure I, I do a really, really good job of preaching because that's, that's the name of the game these days in, uh, in the uh, pastoral world. You know, how many people are listening to your podcast? How many people are downloading your sermon material? Uh, that's got to be the important thing. And then I began to think about really what it is is about numbers, that, that all the big-name pastors all pastor big churches. I mean, when was the last time you heard of, of a famous pastor who's pastoring a church of 50 or 60 people? I mean, it's all about numbers. And so maybe the goal is, is to, uh, to preach and, and lead in such a way that the church just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Then I thought, well, maybe, you know, one of the things that's well-known about pastors is their leadership ability, that they're the CEOs of these great conglomerates. Maybe that's what it means uh, to be a strong pastor, to be known for uh, yourself as being a leadership guru where, where people come and they, they grow under your tutelage. But then I read the Apostle Paul this week, and while the world seems to say that church leaders should be doing all those things, looking more like all-stars in the business world and in the world of entertainment, Paul's words seem to slap us in the face and remind us of the reality of what Christian ministry is to look like. You see, Paul's looking for a few good men, a few good women to serve in the city of Colossae in that church. And he wants to remind them that if you give yourself wholly over to the work of God, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult, especially if you think that this is just a job and not a calling. You see, it tells us in verse 25 that Paul had become a minister according to the stewardship from God himself. He had been called. He had been given a task, and each of us had been given a task. And notice at the end of it, uh, of that passage, in the end of chapter 2, he's invested time, energy, blood, sweat, and tears to this endeavor. He is struggling to make, it, uh, make a go of it, if you will. Now notice chapter 2, verse 1. He does what many in the pastoral world would be told not to. He speaks his heart. He becomes real and transparent. Notice in verse 1, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. What Paul wants to make us aware of this morning is the truth that pastoral leadership, number one, is transparent. It has nothing to hide. It, it, it literally lives its life in, in the front of a glass window as if in a department store for everyone to see. Pastoral leadership, when I say that, doesn't mean just what I do or Pastor Keith or Steve or, or Mario here at this campus. But pastoral leadership is when we look at the church and we have a place within the church where we are serving other people, meeting one another's needs for the glory of God. That's pastoral ministry. And a church to be healthy has to be filled with people who are serving, as Rick Warren, I think, uh, coined, that every member is a minister. Where everybody has their part and they're doing their thing, pastoring the flock 
of God. And so he starts out, he says, I want you to know I'm a real person. I have struggles. I have issues. I, I have things that are on my mind. He's, he's transparent. Number two, notice he says that he's caring. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. What he's saying there is, I want you to know I'm thinking about you. I want you to know that I'm worried about you. I want you to know that that your concerns are my concerns. Your problems are my problems. Your fears are my fears. I love you, and I love you so much that I'm willing, even though I'm far away, even though I haven't met some of you, I've heard about you through your pastor, Epaphras, and my heart is filled with concern for you. Pastoral ministry is transparent, and it's filled with care. And it's not simply this top-down mentality, because what Paul will say to the Colossians is, I want this for you. And so pastoral ministry, listen, it is a bottom-up, not a top-down idea. It starts with people who are serving and honoring God in their lives. And as they do that, some will rise to the top who will be affirmed by a congregation to serve in various leadership roles uh, in organized leadership. And so what he says is if you're going to do that, if you're going to make your life's calling, a calling to serve and honor God by ministering and shepherding people and caring for people, then you got to be transparent, and you got to be transparent and true to a couple different things. Notice this morning three things that I think are imperative to good and godly leadership within the church. Number one, good and godly leadership will help the church, will help others recognize the struggles we all face. Recognize the struggles we all face. Notice Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Not only you, but he then goes on and he speaks of the neighboring city of Laodicea. Many of these letters would be written and addressed to a particular group of people. And then they would be handed off to various other house churches and other neighboring communities where they would be read Uh, by others. And so Paul is speaking to two different churches, and he's saying, I want you to know I struggle for all of you where you are at. Now notice he uses that word struggle. That word struggle in the Greek is the Greek word agnon. It's where we get agony from. We talked about that last week. It was an athletic word that spoke of a competitor who gave all that he had in the ring of competition. Literally, it was spoken in the ancient Olympics of the two men who would wrestle one another in the wrestling competition. Literally, they were wrestling with the thing. So so what Paul was saying was, I want you to know I'm wrestling for you. Later in the book of Colossians chapter 4, he will speak of Epaphras and he'll say, Epaphras is busy wrestling in prayer, agonizing in, in his walk with you, lifting your names up to the Lord. Uh, this next Saturday, I've been given an invitation to, to play uh, in an alumni basketball tournament at my high school. You can all laugh right now. And the problem is, that my competitive heart is bigger, I shouldn't say it, my competitive heart is more competitive than my earthly vessel. And what that means is when I get on the court, I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to agonize. The problem is, is the old pacemaker inside me 
and the lungs that God has given me aren't going to be able to keep up. And I recognize that Saturday night, Amanda's going to have to play the role of the doctor and nurse because I'm going to give my all, and I'm going to come back a broken and beaten man. This idea of struggling is that Paul says, what I am doing is I'm giving my all, that when the day is done, I'm spent. I'm going to give all the hard work that I can, knowing that it's not going to be easy. For those who desire to serve the church, whether as a teacher, as a small group leader, as a person behind the scenes, as a person up front, as an elder or pastor, all of us, that we are given as, as workers for the gospel of Jesus Christ need to recognize it's not going to be easy. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the book of 1 Corinthians. Go to your left in your Bible. If you've got your pew Bible, uh, the page is 962. Page 962. And Paul is speaking in his first letter to the Corinthian church. And he says some things as he's closing out this incredibly difficult letter that he's written to them. Sixteen chapters is going to be written in toll. And yet, at the end of chapter 15, he shares words that we need to be reminded of. Notice what he says in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 58. Here's what he says as he closes out the chapter. Therefore... My beloved brothers, notice he doesn't say my beloved pastors, those elders, those deacons, those ministry leaders. He says, my beloved brothers, all of you at the church at Corinth, notice what he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor For the Lord is not in vain. Now let's stop there for a moment. Just sit here and camp out here for a second. When you give your life to the service of God, it's not going to be easy. Notice in the text that it does not say, always abounding in the fun of the Lord. Always abounding in the rest and relaxation of the Lord. Always abounding in the vacation of the Lord. No, he says it is a a work. It's going to be difficult. To add insult to injury, if we want the easy way out, notice he doesn't just say the work of the Lord and leave it at that, but he goes on saying, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That, That word labor is the Greek word kopos. It it meant an intense labor united with trouble, toil, laboring to the point of exhaustion, not per se to the point of burnout, but extreme weariness. But what in the world would cause such an issue? Why would people that give themselves to the work of the Lord, because we have a lot of TV preachers that say, if you have enough faith... All will go great. There will be no struggles. You have all the money, all the health, all the happiness that you'll need. So where do we get this idea? Well, the scripture back in Colossians reminds us that we're a part of what is called a struggle. Notice in in chapter 1, he says it's not just a little struggle, but it's how great a struggle 
I have for you. I want you to notice a couple things about the struggle. Number one, these struggles involve, first of all, a common battle. They involve a common battle. Paul is not describing a life that's only true for a select group of people. He's speaking to the church. And he's reminding us that that as believers, in some way, shape, or form, in in this life of following Christ, it's going to be difficult. And that's going to be a common experience for believers. We're going to struggle. Now, where are these struggles going to come from? Right down in your outline, the struggles will first come from the obstacles of life. Write that down somewhere in your outline. The obstacles of life. Well, where do we get that, Tim? Where in the text does that come from? Well, we have to recognize that within the text, there's a context to the situation. And the present context for the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians is that he finds himself in difficult and uneasy circumstances. At the end of the book, in fact, just turn a page over to the, in Colossians chapter 4. At the end of the letter, he says this in Colossians 4. 18, the very last verse. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Paul was in prison. He was in jail. We're not sure exactly what it looked like. It could have been a house uh, arrest type situation where he had some freedom. It sounds like people came to visit him, that uh, that Timothy himself was there with him helping writing this letter. But we do recognize by the very reference of chains, whether they are symbolic or literal, that chains would limit what you could and couldn't do. He was limited in his friendships and no doubt felt isolated and alone. He felt vulnerable because he was locked up while, while troubles mounted and and he could do nothing about him. There were people that were bad-mouthing him and speaking ill of him, and he could not respond. He felt enslaved. Chains remind us that he's not the boss. He doesn't get to determine where he's going and what he's going to do. And so here he finds himself uh, in a place where someone else is in charge. And I wonder if Paul must have felt like in some ways his life was not what he had signed up for. Now Jesus had been true and real to Paul because on the day of Paul's Damascus conversion, Paul tells, I'm sorry, Jesus tells um, Ananias that he is to go and bring the sight back to Paul who had lost it because of his vision and appearance of Jesus Christ, that he tells him this guy's going to suffer greatly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul finds himself doing that. Wherever Paul went, there was trouble. And Paul bears his soul to a group of people, some he's never met. Write this passage down just to give you an idea of how great this struggle was so you don't think that Paul's just making up uh, some sob story. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 1, 8. Listen to what he says. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we have experienced in Asia. For we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength, listen, that we despaired of life itself. That's real. Paul says, I want to die. Have you had days like that? 
where life is so difficult, so troublesome, where, where the, uh, the obstacles of life are bearing down at you that you would just say, Lord, just be done with it. I'm done being the crash test dummy that you've got. I, I want to be out of here. I, I'm tired of life. You find yourself in chains. You find yourself feeling like you're in a prison. And yet Paul doesn't share these words so that you can feel sorry for him, for people to come to his aid, for him to gain a following as a martyr. No, he does what good leaders do, and that is they share their heart with people so that people can recognize they're not in the battle by themselves. That it isn't like life is good for one when it's really bad for another. That no matter who we are, no matter how faithful we are in the ministry of the gospel, it's going to be difficult. As an elder, I am privy to so much more than at times I can bear with regards to many of your lives. And I say that not in exhaustion and anger, but just saying there's a lot of hurts in our world. And yet we come to church, and church is where we come to lie. I'm fine, you're fine, we're all fine. And we do that with a smile on our face, all the while we are dying on the inside. We are struggling, we are agonizing, we're wrestling with the things of this world, the obstacles of life. And and some of us this morning barely got here because we're weary in the struggles that are before us. Our our marriages are places of struggle. Our our parenting, our our kids are, are, are taking us to places we never thought we would go. Some of you are dealing with home lives right now. Behind those smiles, home lives that are driving you absolutely mad. Maybe it's that spouse. Maybe it's that child that you don't have an answer for. Maybe it's your job. That dead-end job. That job where you don't make enough. That job where that boss is constantly riding you. That, that job where, where you are the misfit Christian and, and you're smirked at and laughed at and mocked. But you just want to give in. But you're agonizing. Maybe it's your health this morning. You once were vital. You once had everything going from you from a health standpoint. And now you find that even taking a breath or taking a step is agony. It is a struggle to get out of bed. Maybe it's depression. Those voices and thoughts. Those insecurities. The guilt over decisions of the past. They lead you to a darker and darker place. Maybe it's your finances. You work and you work and you work. And the only thing that is constant is that the bill payers keep calling. Maybe you have concerns about yesterday. Maybe there's concerns about today. Maybe there's concerns about tomorrow. Paul was struggling and, and to make him a super saint as if he didn't have issues, that he didn't have fears, that he didn't have, have struggles in his life is to make him something that is not human. He was a man who was struggling, not only in his own life, but in the life of those around him. But you say, well, Paul is a lot different than me. How in the world could Paul do all that he did if he was struggling 
as badly as I was. I believe that Paul took the words of Christ in John 16.33 uh, to heart. Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. You're going to struggle. You're going to wrestle with this thing called life. But take heart. Take heart, Village Bible Church. Take heart, mom who's struggling with a a wayward kid or a struggling kid. Take heart, uh, spouse of an unfaithful uh, lover or other spouse. For the one who finds themselves in a dead-end job, take heart. Take heart, depressed one. Jesus has overcome the world's. You see, a good and godly leader is one who speaks from a place of difficulty, but reminds them. He doesn't just sit there and say, woe is me. Oh, this is so bad. I hate my life. And, and, and they're, not, they're just, just all broken up all the time. Yeah, they're hurting. They're struggling. They're dealing with issues. But they're always looking to the promises of God. And so you have the obstacles of life. I've got to move quickly here. Notice that there's the obedience to Christ is another struggle. Paul has articulated that he is struggling on behalf of the Colossians. And he says why he's struggling with this issue of obedience. Notice he says that it is him we proclaim in chapter 1 verse 28. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling. Paul is sitting there as a a leader within the church. And he's saying, one of the areas where I struggle is where you struggle, and that is in our obedience to Jesus Christ. That we are going to struggle in this world dealing with some of the things that tempt us. You see, the first one deals with the trials of this world. The second one now deals with the temptations of this world. You see, Paul says, my job is to make you mature in Christ, to grow you. Do you know that that's your calling as a person involved in a local church? That your job is to be actively engaged in the life of others, encouraging them, edifying them, equipping them so that they might be, become more like Christ each and every day. But here's the problem. Living in this world is difficult. We are bombarded with all sorts of evil, all sorts of sin, and living uh, that is contrary to the things of God. And the enemies on the other side are, too, are not too easily dealt with. Turn in your Bibles just a page over to chapter 3 of Colossians, and notice what Paul says. He says, all right, We've, got, we've dealt with the obstacles of life. I'm in jail. I've got to deal with that. Now here's the second enemy. Notice what he says. Put to death in chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Notice, our fight with sin isn't, you know what, just don't do it on Sundays. Your fight with sin isn't, don't just do it in your body. It's dealing with the 
the heart and the mind and the lust of the eyes that we deal with. It doesn't just say try to diminish it as much as possible. Notice Paul says put it to death. So we all have these lives that we're fighting with. The flesh that's beating us up. The life of Christ is going, as Paul says, to be an everyday battle where we're going to have to kill things. Listen, we're going to have to kill things that feel so right and put on things that feel so odd. That's the Christian walk. Welcome to being a Christian. Smile, isn't it great? And so we have this issue of a battle that's going on, this trouble that's all around us. Well, what's the good news? Well, a leader always gives an answer. A leader always gives hope. And notice that that Paul says, not only is there a common battle, but a common bond. Notice what the common bond is in in the end of of verse, uh, or start of verse 2. That your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So, we've got this battle. Let's stop lying about it. Let's stop pretending as if I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. We're not okay. Life is hard. It's not easy and it's not going to get any easier. And that's what makes heaven such a beautiful place. That's why all of us should look forward one day to a place where there'll be no more crying, no more trouble, no more pain. That the old is gone and the, the new has come. But here on earth... Christ didn't leave us here and say, you know, suck it up for a while and and maybe I'll show up at some point. But he gave us the church and he gave us believers and he's promised us not a life free from trouble and temptation, but he's blessed us. He's blessed us with others that we can struggle with. And notice what this hope we have in others will do. Notice it's going to, first of all, involve encouragement. That their hearts may be encouraged. That word encouraged literally means is parakaleo. It's the word that means a helper who comes alongside another. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside us, who intercedes on our behalf. But notice this parakaleo, this one who comes, who comes alongside us, doesn't come for a short little season of time, but they are knit together. One translation speaks of this bond saying that they are welded together. They are stuck like glue together. This idea here is the idea that the Christian life is not too difficult when we are connected with others. When we have brothers and sisters around us who bear with our burdens, who carry those burdens who help us when they see us caught in a sin to restore us, as Galatians 6, 1 says, and do it gently. This life is too difficult on on our own to deal with. So God has graced us with others. On Friday, we had a great time of vision and sharing at our annual meeting. And many who were there would agree with me in saying one of the best parts of the night was, was the opportunity that we had as members to read our commitments to one another. Commitments that, that remind us that it's not about me, but it's about others. I'm not in this battle alone, but I have brothers and sisters who have committed themselves to lock arm in arm with me so that I can take on the world and all of its trials and temptations. 
But how is that kind of community created? How are we knitted together? Notice that phrase, knitted together, is in what we call the passive voice. Meaning it's not a result of something you and I do, but it's something that that Christ does within us. You and I have been knitted together. We've been welded together by Christ himself because we've been given the same faith, the same hope, and the same love. And notice that love, he says, is going to lead the way. He says, okay, your hearts need to be encouraged. So you need to be knitted together with people in love. You see, love is the thing that leads the way. Love breaks down racial and social divisions. Love is willing to cover a multitude of sins. Love speaks the truth. Love stops to, to bend down to serve. Love sacrifices. Love pushes away personal preferences and pursuits for another Love does not think ill of someone, but believes the best, hopes the best. Love trusts and endures. Where do we learn to love like that? From the life and example of Jesus Christ. How Jesus loved us. And Jesus reminds us now that while in this world we may have trouble, while there may be tribulation all around us, while temptation may be filling our lives, we have brothers and sisters who are called to be like Christ on our behalf, and we too are to be like Christ for them. You see, good leaders not only lead, but emulate Christ in everything that they do. So whatever struggles you're dealing with, whether it's trials and temptations, Paul says the answer isn't to sit and feel sorry for yourself. It isn't to say, I'm the only one dealing with this, but to get together with a group of people who are committed to being knit together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, who show love to one another in order that we might be encouraged and equipped to stand strong no matter the circumstances that come. So that's point number one. It's a long one. Well, what else is a pastoral leader to do? What, are, what else are we to do? Notice number two, Paul says, that we are to help the congregation, the church, the people under our care to remember the secret that is now fulfilled. Notice in the text, Paul, and starting in verse, the reason why I had us read verse 24 uh, through chapter 2, verse 5, is because three times in our text we're going to see this word mystery. Well, what in the world is the mystery? What is Paul talking about, the secret? Paul reminds us that if we're leading in the church, whether it's a group of kids around a Sunday school table or a small group or in the pulpit, that we need to help promote love by reminding the people of the will and plans of God. You see, our love has to be based in something. And notice Paul says that it's it's based in this full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. You see, we can say we love one another apart from Christ, and it's just going to be mushy-gushy stuff that's made for the Hallmark Network. But when we have it connected to Christ, there's weight to it. There's there's a, a form and foundation to it that will help us to recognize and know what we are called to do. You see, in this day, when Paul speaks of mystery, he's beating down the door of the false teachers in his day. 
He wants you to know that, that like in our world today, when people speak about being spiritual people, that sounds great, doesn't it? I'm, I'm a spiritual person. Well, what does that mean, you're spiritual? What does that mean you are enlightened uh, by, by deep truths? You see, we use these phrases, and nobody knows what they mean, but everybody's impressed when you use them. They sound great. And many of the false teachers that day were saying that wisdom and knowledge was a secret, a mystery, only for a few super select saints. And Paul addresses this false teaching by reminding us in verse one, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, that the mystery that was hidden has now been revealed to whom? To his saints. This thing that he's spoken of three times now, what is it? Notice and write this down somewhere. Uh, the mystery of God is the will of God revealed in his word. The mystery of God is the will of God revealed in his will, or in his word. But what does it consist of? It consists of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who has offered himself as the Savior to both Jew and Gentile alike. Well, let's address this and follow along this line of thinking. The secret Paul speaks of was hidden in the past. That's what verse 26 says. It has been hidden for ages and generations. The idea here of ages, I want you to to understand the depth of this. He uses two words, ages and generations. Ages speaks of eons. God has had a plan to redeem you and I back to himself by the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, before the foundations of the world. Get that in your mind, that before this earth was ever around, before the sun was placed in its orbit, you and I were in the thoughts of God himself. And nobody else knew about it except for the mind of our triune God. The angels didn't know about it. Of course, you and I didn't know about it because we weren't around yet. But somewhere in eternity past, God had a plan for salvation. He speaks of generations. The idea here is then when humanity was brought into the world and in the garden God had a plan. Even before sin, God had a plan. When the man and woman sinned in the garden, God had a plan. And all of the generations from Adam all the way through Abraham, through Moses, and and down through the patriarchs and, and to the prophets, God had a plan. He had a plan for a woman named Mary. He had a plan for a man named Joseph that they were going to be the the earthly mother and father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He had a plan for the disciples. He had a plan for the Apostle Paul. He had a plan for the reformers of the 16th century. And he has a plan for you and I today. He has a plan. It was hidden in the past. Uh, The book of Hebrews 11 reminds us of this truth. It tells us over and over again that men and women took took steps of faith and they did not know what they were taking steps of faith towards. They obeyed God and it was credited to them as righteousness. They pursued obedience even when it was hard, but the text tells us they did not get what they were promised. So Abraham learned that he would be a, a, a father of a great nation of a, of a descendants that would outnumber the stars in the heavens. But he did not see that take place. Now we see it. 
Now we can rejoice in it, but Abraham would have to wait. The prophets also would write chapter after chapter of the Old Testament. And and you need to understand, as they wrote, they had no idea as to the entire picture of what was written. You say, well, where do you get that, Tim? Notice in, just listen to 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Here's what it says, concerning this salvation, this mystery, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets didn't have any idea of the gospel you and I have received. The angels didn't understand it. And hidden for all of humanity up to the point of Jesus Christ, it was hidden. But now, notice, it has been revealed So that which was hidden has been revealed in a person. Hebrews chapter 1, write this passage down. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of the Father, the exact imprint of his nature and Jesus upholds the universe by the power of by the word of his power after making purification for sins Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name Jesus has inherited is more excellent than theirs so on that day we celebrate December 25th the hidden riches of the glory of God were made evident in a manger in Bethlehem. That mystery, that secret, is a person. It's Jesus. And notice that that, that, that person has promised some things. Notice he's promised great possessions of all those who believe. Back to the book of Colossians in verse 127 are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Understand, Moses doesn't have a thing on you and I. Moses got to see the backside of God. That's pretty cool, right? On Mount Sinai. Moses got to talk with God. That's pretty interesting. He would hear uh, the voice of God. That, That was pretty awesome. But the thing that was not as great as what we have as Moses didn't have the living God living and residing within him. He didn't have the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. And so you may say, well, I wish I could talk with God like Moses did. Moses is sitting there today saying to you, I wish I had the Holy Spirit living and residing within me. I didn't even see that coming. I thought we were just going to do this whole law thing for time and time and time again. And that maybe something would come along. He didn't have a clue of what God had planned. The Bible makes it clear. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what he has prepared for his people. And what he had prepared for his people was the second person of the Trinity to come and reside in the temple. 
of each of you and I. That's when Paul says that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. My goodness, if that doesn't rattle you this morning, if the thought that you were on the mind of God before the foundations of the world, if that doesn't help you when, when all hell breaks loose in your life, when, when temptation comes and you say, I can't say no to that sin, I can't say no to that addiction, I can't say no to that struggle I have, if you can't say that, then you don't recognize you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. That Christ had in his heart and his plan to come and reconcile you and I back to himself that he might live in, within us and reside within us so that he may intercede on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. If that doesn't get you fired up, if that doesn't uh, make you want to struggle with all of your might for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're missing something that I've said this morning. So what does all this do? What are we to do with all this? Well, notice Paul says we need to teach it. We need to warn people about it at the end of chapter 1. We need to make people aware of it. And when we do, there's, there's one final thing that, that good leadership does. It rejoices in the stability of following Christ. Like a good parent in verse 5, Paul says, Hey, though I'm absent in body, I am with you in spirit. You know, a parent would understand that, right? We're now in the process of sending off uh, our oldest to to go and experience things by himself. And maybe it's because I'm a naive young father, but when he's gone, I find myself wondering what he's doing. How is he living? Is he having a good time? Is he he safe? You know, does he have everything that he needs? And, and when he gets home, I, I just want to find out, man, what, what did you do? You know, wh- who'd you talk with? Where did you go? And, 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 and uh, who were you engaged with? And, and then my heart's broken because I say, how was it? Fine. What'd you do? Stuff. You're getting a little extra today because he's in Sunday school class, but that absolutely drives me crazy. Tell me about your life. Tell me what happened. Tell me the highs and what you were feeling, what you were thinking. Give me all of it. I sound like my wife now, all right? Sorry, honey. Paul, like a good parent, wants to know how the children are doing. And when they grow, there is no greater joy for a pastor to see his, his congregants, his, his sheep, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what does that look like? Notice a couple things and we'll close it out. Number one, uh, maturity and stability in Christ begins in delighting in the things of God. Notice the text. Notice at the beginning of verse 24, we've got suffering. At the end of verse 24, we've got affliction. At the beginning of chapter 1, or end of, end of chapter 1, we've got um, struggling, more struggling. At the beginning of chapter 2, we've got more struggling, okay? We've got struggling, alienation, or um, uh, afflictions, and suffering. That doesn't sound very good. But notice, at the front and, and back end of all of it, in verse 24 of chapter 1, and at the end of uh, chapter 5, notice what he says, I rejoice. 
brother and sister, if you find yourself in the throes of trials and temptation and and tribulation, whatever they are, you want to know, is God with me? Can you rejoice in your times of suffering? Can you delight in the promises of God, that God who knew you before the foundations of the world, who knitted you together in your mother's womb, that God who has redeemed you and reconciled you has not left you to be by yourself, but as we sang this morning, he's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. He's given us all that we need, and he's going to see to it that he who began a good work in us is faithful to see it to completion. Can you find joy in the journey? Can you find it when when life is difficult that you can delight in the riches of the glory of Jesus Christ? That you can delight in the hope of glory which is Christ in you? Can you tap into that this week and make your dwelling place in the shadow of the Almighty? Because when you do, you're not going to be disappointed. And that's what Paul wants for Colossians. That's what what I and the elders want for this church is that we would be a people who delight in the things of God no matter the circumstances of life. Number two, that we would be a people who are discerning when it comes to what we believe. In verse 4 it says he does all this. He struggles. He he has afflictions. His heart is heavy for the people that they may not be deluded with plausible arguments. The idea here of plausible arguments is, is clever catchphrases, clever speaking. Because Paul recognizes what every pastor should know, that your beliefs will always determine your behavior. And Paul's concerned that the Colossians will fall to some sort of harmful teaching. We need pastors, we need teachers who, who teach and train people how to know the good from the counterfeit. I was grieved this last week. I, I saw a, a list of the 25 most sold books, Christian books, of 2014. Here's my assessment of them. It is filled with people who are advocating harmful teaching. 19 of the 25 books I would throw in the trash. We live in a world, listen to me church, we live in a world that has more information at our fingertips than all the generations combined before us. And I think, sadly, that the Christian IQ has fallen because we're buying into all sorts of teachings that sound compelling, that have the name Christian, and have little substance to them. And so we as pastors, we need to do all that we can. You as teachers need to help those students and those kids and and your small group and your children in your own home to be equipped knowing what the plausible arguments are, how to defend against them so that you may know, listen, that the way of Christ is the right way. It's going to involve one final thing, and that's disciplining our lives to embrace holiness. Notice in verse 5, as as we close this out, he says, I rejoice in seeing your good order and firmness of faith in Christ. That word good order literally speaks of discipline. In the context, the idea is that, that there will not be stragglers in an army that is led well. 
that they're not swayed by the distractions of the battlefield, that there's no breach in, in the line. Good leaders help people hold the line. And there's a lot of reasons for you and I to bolt from our service to Christ. But godly leaders will do all that they can to stand in the gap and be strong and be a model of firmness and steadfastness in their obedience to Jesus Christ. We're in a battle. And we need men and women who are willing to take the mantle and serve the body of Christ wherever God has called you to serve to help the church, first of all, recognize the struggles that we face. Help the church remember the secret of Christ Jesus, which is now fulfilled. And to help people rejoice in the stability of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Will you be that man? Will you be that woman that takes upon yourself that mantle? Paul says it's going to be a struggle, but notice Paul says that it is the thing that brings him the, great, the greatest of rejoicing. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. And I thank you for the patience and endurance of our people uh, to listen to me speak it. And so, Lord, I pray now that we would take these truths and we would, we would dissect them, we would examine them, we would do the work of, of applying it to our own lives. Lord, I pray that you would empower us to yours at the end of, of chapter 1 of Colossians that we struggle, but we struggle according to your glorious might. And so, Lord, with the, the help of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would empower us to do these things for the sake of our families, for the sake of our own walks with our Lord, for the sake of, of our testimony, and for the good of the church. It's not going to be easy. You've told us that. You've reminded us of that. But you tell us that when we struggle and work with all our heart, we will be filled with joy. Fill us with that joy this morning. Fill us with the peace of your promises. And Lord, now send us as we fellowship with one another, as we speak to one another, that we may encourage, we may come alongside one another and encourage in such a way that the one we encourage will be ready for another week in the battle. And Lord, next week bring us back tired and weary and ready to hear from your word again. Thank you, Lord, for this time. And we ask for your blessing now on it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.